Like society is just filled with people who are trying to scam all the time. I want to verify anything anybody ever tells me because there's people who are trying to extract value in ways that are not positive sum with everyone else. There's people who do have ideological views on AI, and that's been interesting to see play out. People don't want it to replace their job, and so they don't use it to increase their productivity to you know, keep their job, which is paradoxical. Because there's tremendous volatility due to how much wind and solar have been connected to the grid here. That creates situations where uh, there's a mismatch between the supply and demand of electricity. Why are people buying Bitcoin from Bitcoin miners? It's because governments are providing a bad money. And then it's like, well, why is the Federal Reserve creating a bad money? Well, because of the legislative process by which the Federal Reserve was created. This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal family or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bitcoin Frontier podcast. This week we have on Pierre Richard from Riot. Pierre, welcome. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, one of the resources that I personally dove into when I first got into Bitcoin was the Nakamoto Institute. I know many people on the Unchained team did as well. Um, what is the Nakamoto Institute? Um, and you were a co-founder of it, right? Uh, I, I'd say um, Michael Goldstein really was the founder uh, okay. and everyone came after that. Um, and, you know, he's, he's the, uh, the president of the Institute. Uh, and so it really is about looking at kind of the origin story of Bitcoin and placing it in kind of the wider context, but also just adding more more thoughts to the story uh, as it has unfolded over the past decade. So when you guys first started posting different various articles and posts on it, what were your thoughts about it? I mean, it was so early in Bitcoin's days. Like, was it very serious content where you're like, oh, this, this you know, we're going to end the Fed. Like, this is the future of the world reserve currency. Or are you like, man, this would be cool. Let's write about it. Maybe it will work out. Maybe it won't. Like, were you guys extremely confident way back then? I think that, um, so first of all, when we were got really interested in it, um, we felt like we were late, right? That, oh man, uh, you know, the, the OGs are from like 2010, 2011, and we're like the latecomers uh, to this story. And I think that part of it was just kind of trying to bring together a lot of um, disparate information. And I think that we probably still feel that way today, right? You'll hear people say, oh, it's like, what's really hard about learning about Bitcoin is that like the content is all over the place and you have to, you know, sift through a lot of different content to find kind of the um, like Bitcoin ethos uh, in, in its totality. So uh, I think that nothing has changed in that regard. Um you know, if anything, Nakamoto Institute has just like added like one more thing that people have to like do a deep dive on uh, the uh, rabbit hole. But um, so were we confident? Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, if, if I look at where my interest was really in terms of actually putting pen to paper, um, one was that I'd writ read a paper by Peter Serta that was very good. It was an Austrian economics analysis of Bitcoin and why the regression theorem of money is not a blocker to Bitcoin becoming, you know, a money. Um, 
So I read that. I read as well uh, the, you know, there there was a paper that was about speculative tax and um, that basically the IMF needed to get its hands on Bitcoin, you know, and build up a reserve uh, before anything bad were to happen. I didn't think that its causal mechanism for how that works was fully fleshed out. And that's why I wanted to write my own version of it, essentially, um, to kind of answer the key question, which is this idea of a tipping point. Like people think that, okay, once Bitcoin gets to a certain percentage of adoption, then there's a rapid acceleration, you know, an S-curve uh, phase transition, um, rather than having kind of a slow going process that of just people basically adopting Bitcoin really as digital gold, right, as kind of a a parallel, but ultimately not a substitute for the dollar. I think that was like the um, and it still is, I think, probably the average view among people who are interested in Bitcoin is still that, hey, look, like it's unrealistic to think that this is actually going to replace the dollar. And it's it's messaging that we have, you know, even in public policy context of like, oh, you guys don't need to worry about Bitcoin replacing, you know, the dollar as a global reserve currency. So, you know, don't don't attack it too much, which, yeah, that's that's great positioning. But I don't think it's necessarily backed by uh, the economics of it long term. The other part of it, though, I think that now with kind of many years buried uh, between those predictions of Bitcoin replacing the U.S. dollar and that not having happened. Now there's just skepticism towards like that thesis, right? That, um, you know, people are like promoting stable coins as uh, the, the future of money and that um, Bitcoin's just going to continue to be a niche interest. So I definitely think that the debate is still open. Uh, the um, kind of the dollar... Uh, coexistence camp has never been stronger just because Bitcoin and the dollar have coexisted now for 14 years. Um, but I still think that, you know, what's not falsifiable about the tipping point position is that it's just like, well, at some point in the future, right? There's not a way of like saying like, hey, look, after the next halving, like it's the final bull market and this is where it's going to finally happen. Um, I don't. I think that would be too aggressive of a, of a position to have. Um, but I still think that, yeah, it's in the future. Um, and so it's not like what I wrote back then is something that I, I would forsake or be like, hey, look, I was wrong about that. Not yet. Yeah, no, it's definitely very fair. I mean, speculative attack was one of my favorite posts on the Nakamoto Institute. I guess this might be more of a like timing question, but, you know, we Michael Saylor, I guess, you know, got really in a big, big into Bitcoin back in 2020. Why do you think more people haven't followed in his footsteps as like borrowing dollars and trying to buy a bunch of Bitcoin? Yeah, so I think that it's really about how much capital can Bitcoin absorb? And so um, th this is what I think makes a monetary technology like Bitcoin have a different adoption pattern than a non-monetary technology. And really what I would call a commodity technology. It's funny because we, we talk about Bitcoin being a commodity. It's really not, right? It's a scarcity. It's a uh, it's what makes it a money. Um, but that a commodity technology, you quickly go from the um, zero to one to the one to N. And the one to N is kind of the, the wider distribution of 
okay, hey, if we're going to have computers, um, we're going to quickly ramp up manufacturing of computers so that within a couple of decades, your computer is uh, in the same format as a phone, right? That you, you, the, 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 the technology has been fully commoditized and, and is cheaper and wider in its distribution. So with a monetary technology like Bitcoin or the scarcity, um, that doesn't work. So meaning that as Bitcoin adoption happens, Bitcoin miners don't produce more Bitcoin and scale up, you know, okay, we were at 50 Bitcoin last week per block. Now we got to get to 100 Bitcoin per week because we're just getting lots of people demanding Bitcoin. And so we've got to get it to a wide distribution, right? That's not how it works. Instead, it distributes through the price mechanism of hey, the value of Bitcoin, its purchasing power has to scale, has to increase uh, in order to accommodate for this increase in demand for people who want to hold value in Bitcoin. Um, and the, that creates a bottleneck because then you have the speculative people trading Bitcoin layered on top of that, the leverage layered on top of that, and then also the rebalancing layered on top of that. That is that with iPhones, you could imagine the absurd scenario of, hey, somebody bought five iPhones and now they're rebalancing their portfolio because the value of iPhones has increased and it has increased from $1,000 per iPhone to $5,000 per iPhone. And so now the, the secondary market is like having to distribute iPhones rather than Apple, right? Um, rather than uh, new iPhones on the primary market. So it it causes um these cycles and especially because you then have like the social mania aspect of it that everyone's talking about bitcoin at the same time everybody's trying to onboard at the same time and the bottleneck is not <clears throat> transactional capacity at the base layer which often you know gets pointed to the bottleneck is really how much can bitcoin's price ramp up before there's so much sell pressure from the secondary market of people rebalancing, right? Um, and, and then on top of that, all the derivatives and and the the the, the leverage trading and all of that, um, and and even just without the leverage, just the the traders who are momentum traders. You don't have momentum traders in iPhones who are like building up inventory because they think the price of iPhones is going to go up next quarter. Like that doesn't exist, um, and so. Uh, that means that Bitcoin's adoption happens very differently than the adoption of other technologies. Uh, you get these wild oscillations in price that then in the bear market, that drives new adoption away. And I, I do think there's still like a, a certain amount of adoption that happens during the bear market, despite the price action, that you have what I'd call like real fundamental adoption of people who are adopting Bitcoin for its utility, either as savings or as payments, but that uh, they're not just momentum traders, right? Obviously, since those guys are selling uh, in the rare market. Um, so uh, I forget where we started with the question, but that's that's why I think that there's a different path here. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely pretty safe to say we've never seen you know, the monetization of a new commodity at this pace, if that's what we're seeing, which I think we are. Um, whenever you, back in 2013, originally in, in 2014 and so on, published a lot of these posts on the Nakamoto Institute, 
did you think it would happen faster than it has happened over over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Because in the speculative tech article specifically, I lay out that this is going to happen whenever you have enough liquidity at the exchanges, at, at, you know, between fiat and Bitcoin. And I think the the benchmark I set for liquidity was like in the hundreds of millions. Now we're in the billions, right? In the tens of billions sometimes of, of, of trading volume. Um, and so clearly I was wrong in terms of what threshold this is going to happen at. Um, I think that it's, yeah, Bitcoin's got to be bigger uh, before it uh, has kind of that critical mass. Um, or, or I'm wrong in that it doesn't reach that critical mass regardless of how big it gets it's still the 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 uh, kind of the causal mechanism that would cause it to replace the dollar will still fail, right? I think is kind of the other theory. Um, but the other part of it too is that is Bitcoin going to replace the dollar through kind of an upgrade process, or does it in an emergency because the dollar has destroyed itself that Bitcoin has to fill a vacuum? Um, and I think that that is still TBD, uh, just uh, based on what's going on with, you know, kind of the dollar system right now. It, it doesn't look great. Yeah, I, I mean, I tend to agree. Um, so you've been on the Bitcoin frontier for, I guess, a decade now. I, I'm pretty sure you started your career as an accountant. Did being an accountant like enable you to think about Bitcoin from like a different perspective? Um, you know, the... the uh, my, I started my career at Target, uh, folding clothing, um, and you know that actually did influence uh, me in one regard, which is that I um, one day I was in the parking lot of Target, and these guys pulled up, and they were running what's called a white van uh, speaker scam, and they were like, "Hey, we have these speakers here. We were going to install them. Uh, they canceled the contract. Do you want to buy them half off?" And they're like completely overpriced, right? So it's, it's half off from like $5,000 to $2,500, but they're really worth like $30, right? Um, and th these white fans, uh, speaker scams, like they're, uh, I, I thought it was just like a weird, like, what are you guys talking about? Like, a, you know, I'm, I'm here to fold laundry. Um, but uh, the, I, I thought it was really interesting that like society is just filled with people who are trying to scam all the time. And it did make me think that like I want to verify anything anybody ever tells me because the world is not like it's an adversarial environment, right? There's people who are trying to extract value in ways that are not positive sum with everyone else. Um, and so I think that that already kind of tainted my view of altcoins in the sense of I'm just going to be very skeptical about any claims, but even of Bitcoin, right? When When I first started learning about Bitcoin, it was like, my instinct was that the cryptography could not be bulletproof. And so somebody saying the cryptography is perfect or whatever, like that doesn't make sense to me. And that that, that means Bitcoin's vulnerable in some way. Uh, it took me a long time to get to a point where I was like, okay, the, the, the assumptions here are you know, pretty reasonable. Um, so then, you know, working in accounting, I think that same level of skepticism, I mean, this is probably why I ended up in audit, right? It's like, I was interested in like running the numbers and double checking things uh, just on a, uh, 
uh, almost reptilian level. Uh, but um, that uh, then I, I thought it was just fascinating that like other accountants weren't immediately interested in sound money because they didn't understand like monetary economics from an Austrian perspective. They had a Keynesian perspective of it, right? And to them, it was like, okay, well, this this is uninteresting because how do you have an elastic money supply that can you know stabilize the economy? Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that that's also perhaps a break on Bitcoin adoption versus other technologies. Like, there's people who do have ideological views on AI, and that's been interesting to see play out. Uh, of like people don't want it to replace their job and so they don't use it to increase their productivity to you know keep their job which is paradoxical um but also at a policy level people think that like ai is going to destroy the world and it's basically a nuclear weapon that you know if if there's a lab leak that somehow it's going to uh you know become gray goo and consume the world um but the so, so, so I, I do think that like a lot of technologies get pushback, uh, but that Bitcoin has gotten more pushback than any other technology on just purely ideological grounds, not on, hey, is this actually, you know, uh, useful uh, to me or not? Um, so I, I, that, that's something that I saw throughout my career. Um, and then, yeah, kind of moved from accounting to software engineering, uh, then to product management at Kraken. Um, and and now uh to research here at riot yeah i like it i i know about your being a product manager at kraken um what made you shift from accounting to product management yeah um so it really was a switch from accounting to software development because i really felt like there was a lot of manual data entry in accounting and that didn't make sense to me in in today's world of computers and so that's why i got into software development to like automate that um, and then from software development into product management of basically that um, there is a gap between the business world and the software engineering world, and that bridging that gap uh, can be very valuable in a lot of different contexts. So um, that's, that, that kind of drove my interest in, in the world of product management. Yeah, makes sense. Um, on like At your time at Kraken as a product manager and being a software engineer in general, how has that shaped your views on building Bitcoin products? Like, I, I feel like a lot of Bitcoin and even like crypto companies, they like, you know, go through phases where they blow up and do really good and then they die and disappear and you never hear from, the, from them again. Uh, how do you think about building actual Bitcoin products? Yeah, so I, I think that I've become increasingly conservative in this regard of basically that um, you you have to... Uh, first of all, have a very limited scope of what you want to do. I think that the companies that uh, kind of overstretch themselves and like expand their scope to, um, you, you, to as they're trying to basically growth hack, right? That they're trying to get more users. And so they build more and more features rather than kind of just staying super focused on the area that they want to excel at and kind of accepting the growth rate of that uh, and growing organically with it, which um, might not lend itself sometimes to like being aligned with VCs or other stakeholders who like want that like very consistent rapid rate of growth, which I think is really about 
as we were talking about other technologies where that is sustainable. And where it, whereas in Bitcoin, companies get themselves in trouble because they have this very fast growth during the bull market. And then they get a big slowdown in growth and they think it's because of what the company is or is not doing rather than the fact that you got to ride the waves in Bitcoin and that sometimes, you know, there's going to be times where, hey, you hunker down, you build during the bear market, but you're not really like uh, building in the sense of growing headcount and like rapidly expanding and trying to bring in more users, but rather just, hey, you know, iterating on the existing product, uh, fixing bugs so that, it, you know, it, addressing scaling bottlenecks that were, you know, identified during the ramp up. And that way you're ready for the next bull market um, rather than like trying to find ways to have growth in the bear market. I think that that's um, probably something that I've noticed uh, over the years. I definitely agree with that. Would you say that's basically just adopting a lower time preference and, you know, being able to survive the dark winters that come with Bitcoin adoption? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, look, like Bitcoin's volatile, right? That's like the number one critique of it. And so um, the the risk management and the business planning has to be very sensitive to that and be ready to pivot, uh, you know, pretty quickly. Um, and so um, that comes with the other part of it, too, though, I think, is that um, people in the crypto world will invest lots in building on something that is a fad and that is gone in the next bull market, right? Uh, and so I think that's that's where I'm like, okay, here's why you should focus on Bitcoin. This is what's going to be here in the next five cycles, right? Uh, to, you can't tell me with a straight face that any other technology is going to be here through the next five cycles. Completely agree. Um, it You know, like the Bitcoin community, I feel like, has been wrong about a number of things throughout the years, including myself. I'm sure you have as well. Is there anything that you think that the community is like mainly wrong about today? Mainly wrong about, um, I think that, uh, gosh, that's a hard question. Um, and maybe it could yeah. be like, may not be, you might have a different opinion from the rest of the community on this. So yeah, I mean, be... I think that it's really around this. It's still around what we wrote about with the security budget. Um, but uh, specifically the block size limit. I do think the block size limit is going to be increased in the future. And I think like the community is mainly wrong about that being, uh, you know, uh, unrealistic, but I also, you know, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world if it doesn't increase. I just think that from a not from a normative perspective of it should be increased. I think from a predictive perspective, the odds that it will be increased are higher than what the community is is handicapping it at. Fair enough. That's a that's a uh, definitely a, a good take. Um, and and just to back that up with like why I think that's the case is it's about improvements in internet connectivity and hardware like that the internet is going to get faster hardware is going to get faster and the software is going to be increasingly efficient in terms of verifying the blockchain and so that means that the like median cost of running a bitcoin node is going to tend to go downwards and that that's going to justify uh, an increase 
Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I guess you're still saying that that would be like decades or more away sure. from, yeah. from now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know uh, since you are at Riot, we can talk about mining. Um, New York Times and others have talked about how Bitcoin mining emits a lot of CO2. You, you made a very famous video fact-checking uh, the New York Times and explaining that Bitcoin ASICs do not visit uh, or emit CO2. I've visited multiple Bitcoin mines as well, and I can confirm that that's the case. Um, what do you like? What are your general thoughts? Like, why? Why? Are you know the, why is the mainstream media overreacting to Bitcoin emitting CO two and and mining in general? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's 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 the angle they have on energy intensity, as they put it. That is that um, this is a process that is consuming you know gigawatts of electricity. Um, I, I think that you know the latest estimates are still less than ten gigawatts. I, I'd have to double you know fact check me on that, but um, so or yeah, probably like between fifteen and ten gigawatts, um, which is a lot from you know one perspective, but from another, it's it's not a lot, and it really comes down to the question of who is this energy intensity competing with. Because if it's just competing with waste, that is that this energy would have gone to waste, uh, then it doesn't really provide a solid angle from kind of a populist, like uh, zero sum perspective where they're like, hey, if you're if you're taking electricity, that means that there's a hospital that doesn't have electricity. And it's, you know, there's a blackout and that, you know, these patients at the hospital are dying. Like, I think that's. That's what, you know, I'm, I'm using an extreme example there of, you know, what they're complaining about is with energy intensity. But the, if that's absent, then they have to find other indirect arguments relating to energy intensity. So they, the indirect argument is about carbon emissions. That is that there's some sources of electricity that do emit CO2 and that if if the greenhouse gases are causing this runaway uh, climate change that is going to cost lots of lives and you know cost lots of resources, then uh, we have to one is change power or sorry power generation right so adopt nuclear adopt wind solar battery um, hydro and then they talk about renewables like uh, burning down forests apparently is renewable uh, as biomass uh, which I don't know about that one guys uh, but. Anyway, some lobbyist there uh, was able to, to get that in there. Um, but the other argument that they have is that we have to reduce overall energy consumption, electricity consumption, so that we don't have to build as much electricity generation. And, um, you know, that's one perspective on, on it. I, I kind of have just a market-driven approach of, okay, look, if people are willing to buy electricity, then they, for example, a homeowner, they have to choose between increasing the energy efficiency of their house to lower their, their electricity consumption or just paying more for electricity. And I think that that is a decision that people can make without any intervention of, you know, trying to decide that trade-off. Um, and so I think that uh, from a kind of a policy perspective, that also applies to Bitcoin mining. That is that if people who are holding Bitcoin 
who are, you know, essentially uh, running nodes and setting the rules for Bitcoin, if they want to pay the miners for these Bitcoin, and then that indirectly causes the electricity consumption, and that indirectly causes the power generation, and that indirectly causes uh, carbon emissions because there's a policy failure in terms of pricing that externality, then um, it just seems very odd to kind of circumscribe the, the causal mechanism and say, actually the causality, because we could also go in the opposite direction of why are people buying Bitcoin from Bitcoin miners? It's because governments are providing a bad money. And so really the indirect carbon emissions are coming from the Federal Reserve, right? If we want to kind of draw the full causal mechanism, and then it's like, well, why is the Federal Reserve creating a bad money? Well, because of the legislative process by which the Federal Reserve was created. And so it's, you know, okay, it's the legislators. Who voted for them? The voters. Okay, so it's the voters' fault that there are these carbon emissions, right? And so then it, so for the New York Times to then come out and say, hey, look, here's the causal chain. It starts with Bitcoin miners. That's because that's where they want it to start. Not because there's a legitimate, coherent argument that that's where it starts. They want it to start there because they don't like Bitcoin. And so any kind of negative story is going to start with, okay, where does where does the Bitcoin nexus, where is the, what is it, where does it intersect with Bitcoin? Because then everything downstream of that is bad. Um, and it's also the case, it's not just about the carbon emissions, right? They'll run headlines about terrorist financing is coming from Bitcoin. When really what we're talking about is like a very small dollar value of terrorist financing relative to other sources, right? Uh, you, you know, whether it's, billions of dollars going, you know, through Iran or, um, you know, lots of weapons that were left behind in Afghanistan, um, where, you know, it would be interesting for, for, for some senators to say, hey, look, what's the indirect causal mechanisms here, right? Is it, is, is Bitcoin, and it, to me, it's totally bizarre to be like, hey, Bitcoin is why there's terrorism in the world. When terrorism existed long before Bitcoin. In fact, I would argue that there have been fewer terrorist attacks since Bitcoin was invented in 2008 than before. Um, just as an empirical question of, okay, what you know, what's the causality here? Um, but the so it doesn't matter to them whether the substance is true of is Bitcoin disproportionately contributing to carbon emissions or disproportionately contributing to terrorist financing? What matters to them is what are the different hooks we can use to try to ban or limit Bitcoin because we want to protect the seniorage revenues that we have from issuing the world reserve currency it is really, I think, the correct framing to look at these debates as. Yeah, those were fantastic points. Um... Very good. Uh, another question that I have relating to mining is obviously you're working for Riot Platforms, a billion dollar publicly traded Bitcoin mining company. For, this can be answered from your perspective or Riot's perspective or whoever. Um, uh, this are... is all from my perspective. Okay. This is not reflect the views of Riot uh, <laughs> to the extent that they don't. Yeah, to the extent that they do, they do. Fair enough. Um, well, what is your perspective for Bitcoin miners in the, out in the world? surrounding the block reward being cut in half, you know, 
a lot of I worked at Blockware. You know, a lot of miners are definitely getting ready for the having. Um, you know, upgrading their machines and trying to drive down their electricity expenses. How do you guys, or how do you think about you know that from a Bitcoin miner's perspective? Yeah. So our Bitcoin mining strategy is to have uh, the lowest cost of production through a combination of uh, vertical integration uh, and then the electricity uh, power strategy. Um, and so from the vertical integration perspective, it's really about being a real estate company. So having that land, being a construction company that builds the data center, uh, operating the data centers um, and uh, having the self mining uh, within that. Um, owning the machines, right, and and contributing hash rates. So um, that's also in conjunction with ESS Metron that does the electrical equipment manufacturing. Um, so that is part of getting to a very low cost of production because when we start talking about the having, it really is uh, a game of musical chairs, right? That okay, we had uh, 6.25 chairs, now we have 3.125 chairs. And uh, that means that 50% of the people are going to uh, sit on their butts uh, on the ground. Uh, whereas, you know, the other shareholders are going to, to continue in the game. So whoever has the lowest cost of production gets a chair. Um, and that's really the way to think about it. And so um, from, from our perspective, because we are very competitive on having the lowest cost of production that uh, we get to, to continue. Um, and we're going to continue on that strategy, uh, so that continues to be the case, you know, uh, for, for uh, going forward. Uh, the other piece of it is the power strategy, right? So uh, this is really critical in the ERCOT market, uh, in the Texas market, because there's tremendous volatility due to how much wind and solar have been connected to the grid here. Um, because of federal subsidies in, you know, it's called the production tax credit, um, there is a massive amount of historical deployment of wind and solar and also of new deployment going forward. And that creates situations where uh, there's a mismatch between the supply and demand of electricity. Um, and so uh, that mismatch has to be bridged by really three different kinds of technologies. One is natural gas peaker plants that are able to, uh, so they use basically jet engines, right? These are aero derivatives uh, that are able to go from zero to 100% electrical output in a matter of minutes, right? Uh, and those uh, peaker plants are part of making kind of um, uh, bringing enough generation online uh, to match increased demand. If wind and solar are underproducing either because it's night and there's no solar um, or there's no wind uh, or some combination of both. Uh, so the other technology is batteries. Uh, batteries are very expensive. So in practice, peaker plants really, you know, are the, the bulk of what balances the grid. The third technology is demand response and demand response can happen uh, at the residential level, so you can sign up with your utility and they will control your thermostat and change what temperature is it is in your house to reduce your demand during peak uh, load times. 
And, you know, typically they'll, they'll pay you like $50 to do that for a whole year or something like that, right? Um, and that's at the residential level. It also happens at the industrial level. And so at the industrial level, which is the level where, uh, you know, Bitcoin miners like Riot are operating, um, that's where we are directly uh, contributing to grid balancing, both through economic demand response of, hey, look, our strike price, let's call it $100 a megawatt, anything above that we economically curtail. Um, but also by participating in ancillary services with ERCOT so that the grid operator has control over uh, how the load behaves in relation to what's going on on the rest of the grid so that they're able to, in real time, balance supply and demand and you know provide for their role, their mandate of maximizing reliability on the grid. Um, so for, for Bitcoin miners, you know, in terms of uh, having kind of a, a power strategy that is adapted to the Texas environment, it's a combination of having a power purchase agreement in place, a hedge in order to uh, be able to pre-purchase electricity when prices are low and there's ample generation, and then being able to sell that pre-purchased electricity when there are constraints, when there's not enough power generation because there's not enough wind or not enough sun that we as a load are able to sell our electricity back to the market. And that allows for a balancing of supply and demand. Um, and so combining that with participating in ancillary services uh, is really what makes a power strategy that reduces the cost of production for mining a Bitcoin uh, to be really competitive on a global basis. Yeah, it definitely seems like Riot has one of the best power strategies in the entire industry. I think you hammered out like the cost side of things, but I, I think from like an outsider's perspective, they may be like, why would I, you know, want to allocate capital to a business where I know for sure their future revenues, at least denominated in Bitcoin, are going to go down forever? How would you counter argue that? argue that? Would you basically just say like, hey, those three Bitcoin are going to be a lot more valuable than these six Bitcoin that we're earning today? Or how would you take it? Well, um, I think it still it still has to do with the cost because you're right that it's a it's a revenue thing. But the way to frame the revenue conversation as a cost conversation is that you're doubling the cost of production with the halving. And so if your cost of production was $10,000 per Bitcoin before the halving, then you know it's going to be $20,000 per Bitcoin after the halving. Then you can still look at it from a unit economics perspective and say, hey, look, this still makes sense. Um, and on top of that, if your competition does not have that same cost structure and they have a bad cost structure that puts them above, you know, where basically if their cost of production is $40,000 per Bitcoin after the halving, then they go out of business then you take their market share, then your uh, revenue perspective is not minus 50%, right? It might be minus 20% because there's also been a reduction in terms of hash rate and difficulty due to others not being, you know, not having the right unit economics post-having. Fair. Uh, another question kind of relating to the having uh, and, or just havings in general is bringing back up like stock to flow. 
not just the the model, but like the concept in general of like I guess scarcity or flow relative to to supply or stock. How do you think about stock to flow? Like, was the model completely wrong? Is the concept completely wrong, or is the concept right? How do you reconcile those two, and how do you think about it today? Yeah, great question. So, um, this is probably still something that you know, as we were talking about the block size limit, that um, I'm at odds with the uh, Bitcoin community on. Uh, I, I think that because Bitcoin didn't go to a hundred thousand dollars, that um, the you know mgu and stock to flow and all of this like uh people are really upset about it so uh, they're like hey look this model uh, is broken because you know it did not the price did not go up enough um and i just think that it, it shows the limits of the model uh and of really the heuristic i mean putting the math aside just kind of the thought process of uh supply versus demand and I think that the reason why we did not go up higher in the previous uh, bull market is actually because of inflation. And this is very counterintuitive because people are like, hey, look, Bitcoin's an inflation hedge. So if, so if inflation is running hot, that means Bitcoin's going to uh, outperform. But if inflation's running hot and that causes rates to increase and that causes dollar supply to decrease, then Bitcoin's going to underperform. And so it really is like a game of chess of how far into the chess game are we looking at in terms of Bitcoin's price, you know, reflexivity. Um, and so I think that's what happened is that uh, Bitcoin underperformed because we went into a tightening cycle uh, because inflation was hot, uh, which is, you know, counter to the narrative of Bitcoin being an inflation hedge. Um, you know, I think that Bitcoin's really a monetary hedge and that if, you know, the monetary cycle is 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 negative, then Bitcoin's, you know, going on to perform. Um, so that's then it's like, OK, well, that is outside. That's exogenous to Bitcoin's stock to flow to, you know, the Bitcoin's supply, right? Software engineering perspective. Um and that's right. So uh, I think that it has to be the intersection between Bitcoin's monetary policy, Bitcoin supply, S2F, and the dollar's monetary policy of interest rates, right? And that's that intersection is, I think, um, a big part of Bitcoin's price action. Now, we can get into debates about like relative merits and like quantifying it and all that, but um, that's that's where I'd stake out the position. Now, the other thing that I've really noticed, as, you know, from the Bitcoin mining industry is that people tend to look at what is the flow impact of Bitcoin miners selling into the spot market as they're earning Bitcoin, right? And I think that is valid, but you also have to add on top of that that that's just the OPEX piece of the cash flow statement. Add the CAPEX and uh, in, in kind of the investment, right, of the, the investment and financing part of the cash flows in order to get a more fulsome picture of how much is Bitcoin mining impacting price action? Because look, Core Scientific, they liquidated how many Bitcoin because of their balance sheet, you know, 
financing situation. Or, uh, you know, Bitcoin miners um, choosing not to buy Bitcoin or accumulate Bitcoin and to buy machines instead because of where the hash price is, right? So I think that, like, in terms of understanding what the price impact is on uh, or what Bitcoin mining and the relationship with price is, I think that there's more that could be modeled into that so that it's clear that, hey, look, there's an investment cycle in in Bitcoin mining infrastructure that is like 12 to 24 months. And that, you know, we have to take that into account when we think about, okay, does the halving impact uh, Bitcoin price action? Because it's, it, you know, there's complicated flows as part of that. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's a lot more complicated than people make it out to be. And it is kind of funny what you brought up earlier about the dollar, you know, I guess like M2 supply actually decreasing. The dollar became ultrasound faster than, than ETH, I guess, um, in that case. Um, yeah. But last question, then we can go ahead and wrap it up. What excites you like about humanity other than Bitcoin? Is there any other topic or interest that you have right now? Yeah, so I've been using uh, AI quite a lot, ChatGPT. I think that um, it is it is a huge productivity booster and that we're only scratching the surface of how much it's going to uh, improve things for humanity. And it's very fascinating because it does intersect with Bitcoin mining in the sense that now we have two... Um, two highly valuable things competing for the same set of scarce resources. Uh, and so AI data centers and Bitcoin miners are now, uh, you know, going to be kind of competing with each other pretty directly. And I love both. Um, and so I wish this was not the situation, but the reality is there's only so many transformers to go around. There's only so many, you know, hundreds of megawatts to go around and in the short term, in the medium and long term, right? Humanity can do anything, but, um, in, in the short term, I think we're going to start seeing articles, you know, uh, Microsoft saying, hey, Bitcoin mining is uh, controlled by the Chinese and we need to get get rid of it. Uh, that's kind of competitive angles. Yeah, it is pretty funny. That, like the Bitcoin mining industry kind of went down and then all of a sudden the AI industry went up and maybe at some point they'll be both going up together and it'll be even crazier than it was before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the next bull market's going to be bonkers because I, I do think that AI is going to continue to grow at a breakneck speed and that, you know, there will be another Bitcoin bull market and that uh, coincidence will uh, be pretty fascinating to, to to be a participant and spectator on. Completely agree. Pierre, thanks so much for coming on. This was an awesome podcast. Where can the audience go find and learn more about you after this? Uh, yeah, Twitter at Bitcoin Pierre. Um, watch out for those impersonators. Uh, and uh, on LinkedIn, Pierre Oshard. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for, for listening in. Awesome. And thanks, thanks for Pierre. having me on, Jeff. Yeah, of course. <laughs>